Good morning. If you would, join me in Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke, the fourth chapter. And for those of you, as Landon said, that didn't think that we did exist separately, we are in the same place this morning. We are two different people. So I take the heat for his sermon, so if this one is bad, you give it to him. Just, just, just kidding, just kidding. Luke chapter 4. This morning we're going to look at Jesus' homecoming. Homecoming, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you might say. We'll begin reading in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do hear in your hometown what, you, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. And God, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you are saying to us this morning through your word. And so, God, we ask for you to speak. We ask for you to confront our hearts and our minds and our lives just as Jesus confronted them that day. And that, God, may we not grow angry, but, God, may we be broken. And, God, may we turn not away from you, but to you. In your name we pray. Amen. This is a homecoming gone bad. Jesus had been, um, as we'll walk through this passage this morning, we'll find that we sort of go from the big picture and then the text begins to narrow our focus and narrow our focus onto a single event and a single few words that change the course of their time together and, and are a wonderful and but maybe difficult lesson for us as well. 
Most of us, if you've been in Baptist churches at, at any point in time, uh, particularly uh, churches that may uh, you know, be in a rural area with a long tradition or history, they have what's called homecoming. Maybe some of you have been to a, to a church that had home, a homecoming. Uh, the church that I grew up in did not have that. I'm not sure exactly why it wasn't, but my grandparents' church had it. And then when I pastored a church in Amy, we had the homecoming. Homecomings are sort of like reunion, family reunions, you know, for the, for the people who have moved away, for the people who have moved on, for, for pastors and staff and those that have, that have left to, to come back and to share and to reminisce some time together. And most of you, if, if you've been to a family reunion, you know something of what this is like. Sometimes it's fun, but sometimes it's awkward, right? And uh, sometimes there are the, the people that talk to you like you, they know all about you and you have no clue who they are. Some of them, you know who they are and you just avoid them anyway. You know that that's the uncle with the bad breath and that's the lady that makes the funny casserole that, that you want to avoid at all costs. And sometimes I found that, that, that church homecomings can be kind of the same way. You know, it's sort of the good, you know, the fun that you see the kids grow up, but then you're, you know, reunited maybe with people that, you know, you went different ways for, for a good reason, and now you're back in the same room and it's kind of awkward. But I'll have to say that I've never seen a homecoming go as bad as this, where people ultimately try to kill one another. And um, I say that half in jest and half not in jest because that's literally what took place here. As Jesus said, something that was so, um, so difficult for them to understand, something that was so difficult for them to accept, and the fact that the message came to them from one of their very own caused these people to become so angry that they would want to take Jesus' life. And it's amazing to me that we go from such a, a wonderful homecoming where everyone is happy and everyone is excited and, and a, the homeboy has come back to town and everyone is proud of him and, and is listening with anticipation and has packed the synagogue with, with the expectation that, that something is going to happen exciting here just like it has been happening exciting everywhere else. And in the matter of just a few moments together that day, they are ready to take his life. So what could happen? What could have been said? What could have transpired that would cause this, this radical transformation, this, this difficult transition from, from, a, from an awesome time together to, to such a disastrous outcome? We'll start today with the big picture. And verse 14 gives us sort of the setting of what has been taking place. In the previous chapter, or the, we see that Jesus had been baptized and his ministry had begun. It had been been established and he had been anointed by God to begin his ministry and he had begun to do that. And verse 14 sort of gives us the, the, in, in one small sentence uh, the, the, the history of that Jesus had been on tour. He had been traveling the land and had been, been traveling around and had been performing miracles and the, the word about him and the word about what he had been done and his reputation had begun to spread. And, you know, we would understand that. And the, the, the word is out about who Jesus is and about what he's doing and it's, it's caught on and it's caught fire and, and people are interested and people are wondering what is, what is this all about. The crowds are praising him. There's adulation. There's, 
there's excitement. He's, the Bible tells us that, that he was uh, filled with the Spirit. If you'd like to know more about what it means to preach with the Spirit, our pastor has given a couple of years of his life and a few thousand words to a dissertation on the very subject. So I'll just skip over that part real quick. But, but you can see that, that, he's follow, that Jesus is not doing his own thing. He's not out there following his own agenda. He is being obedient to the Father, and the Spirit has filled him, and the Spirit is, is leading him, and he's following the Spirit, and these wonderful things are taking place. Not because he's just doing his own thing, but it's a result of his obedience. It's a result of the, the Spirit filling him and the Spirit doing this work in him. And the word has spread. And so just sit back for just a moment and imagine what it must be like to, you know, this is sort of the, the, the star athlete that's gone on from your high school or for, from your hometown gone and done wonderful things in the, you know, and gotten national notoriety and, and been on the front page of the paper and, and, and everybody knows his name, everybody knows what he's about. And he comes home. You can imagine the anticipation of, you know, well, let's, he's, he's one of our own. He's, he's done all these great things out there and now he's come home to us. And there's anticipation and expectation that, that if he could do those wonderful things out there, then certainly there's going to be something awesome that happens when he comes home to the synagogue that day. And so now we begin to focus this, this message and begin to focus this story not on the countryside and not on the reputation that Jesus has everywhere else, but the, the scene moves to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And we begin to focus in on what happens that day in the synagogue there as he comes home. And uh, we know maybe a little bit about what their worship would have been like, and, and it typically would have involved a reading from the prophets, and that's what Jesus did that day. And this particular passage from verses 18 and 19 are uh, a portion of the prophet Isaiah. And he reads it. And we'll read it again. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He rolls up the scroll and sits down. Now, in Baptist churches, that would mean that everything's over, right? I mean, if the preacher sits down, it's, you know... Time to pray a little bit, do something, shake hands, and, and you know, head to lunch. And, uh, you know, there have been times in my life where either I or somebody else suggested to me that was probably the preferred approach, you know, that just, just read a little bit, say a few words, and let's, let's head out. But in Jesus' case, this is not the end of anything. This is only the beginning. In fact, this was the easy part because it's going to take a turn from here. But, but let's focus on what his message was just really quickly. We, we could spend the whole time here, but we'll just, just move through this. That Jesus is proclaiming what his mission is, what his purpose is, what God has put him on earth to do. And he, he identifies different classes of people through the prophet Isaiah that, that, that would be affected by this. And the first of these is the poor. And truly, he's speaking about people 
who would be poor, who would be experiencing poverty. But in addition to that, he would be applying this, and we would apply this to those who are spiritually uh, poor. Those of us without, that, that being without God, with being without God's salvation, that we would be poor, that we would be missing something, that we would be um, spiritually uh, impoverished. It's the same word that's used in the Sermon on the Mount to describe those who are poor in spirit. Then he moves on to talk about those who are prisoners, and, and these would be pr- maybe literally prisoners of war, but it, it's clear that these are people who are in bondage. We know what um, you know, a prisoner looks like as we see people that do the perp walks you know, on the news and things that, that are shackled and, and, and confined and you know, someone else is calling the shots. Someone else is, is dictating what happens and when you do it and you lose all of the freedom that comes uh, when you are a prisoner. And then thirdly, the blind. We see that throughout the gospel that Jesus actually did heal physical blindness. But we also know that he's additionally talking here about what it means to be spiritually blind. When Paul testifies in Acts 26 about what, what Jesus had done in his life, he, he gives to them that Jesus' message to him was to, to open eyes, that, that, there's a, that, that God wants to open the eyes of those who are blind, and that's what Jesus had come to do. And the oppressed describe those who are broken, who are crushed through the circumstances or, of life or their situation. They are oppressed. And then finally, the, the last line there in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or other translations call it the acceptable year of the Lord, literally means to describe that, that this is the dawn of a new day, that this is the dawn of salvation, that salvation has come, that, that, that what had been happening is no longer, that something new is taking place, and this is the dawn of God's salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, I remember last year, I, I don't know why this came to mind. Maybe it means something, maybe it doesn't. But, but as I was reading this, the acceptable year of the Lord, the thought came to my mind that, that last year was the Chinese year of the tiger. And as, a, you know, as an LSU fan, you can't ever go wrong with a year of the, year of the tiger. Um, you know, and so I, I thought that was pretty neat that they, you know, they label their years with, with animals and they kind of go through a, uh, a routine or they rotate you know, after so many years. Now, I don't know that the year of the rat or the year of the snake is all that exciting. You know, that doesn't seem to have the same panache that year of the tiger does, at least not in Baton Rouge. Maybe our Mississippi State fans would like the year of the dog, but, you know. But they don't, you know, this year of the tiger, you know, just you've labeled the year that this is the year, and I don't know what the year of the tiger means or symbolizes or anything like that, and I'm not suggesting that you should, you know, take up this line of, of, of belief or thinking at all. But we do, we do label certain months, right? You know, February was, was Black History Month, and, and uh, I think March is like Women's History Month, and, you know, different months we label with different things. Even in Baptist world, our calendars, we know we have different emphasis for different months, and we, we label certain things. Um, for those of you coffee lovers, I was able to discover this small fact that March just happens to be Caffeine Awareness Month. Um, 
I don't know if that's a good awareness or a bad awareness. I don't know which way you go with that. Like, should you be aware that you should have more caffeine or less? I don't know, but, but just in case you were wondering, it's, it's that time of year again. But what Jesus is saying here is he's not saying, okay, it's now AD 33 or AD 30 or whatever year it is. Okay, now it is, it's a year of salvation. Jesus is doing something very different here. Jesus say, is saying that this is a year, the acceptable year of the Lord, that this is the year of the Lord's favor, not because the calendar changed, but because Jesus showed up. That the, 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 what has dawned this new day, what has inaugurated this time of salvation and this acceptable year of the Lord is the fact that Jesus has now been anointed to preach and that Jesus has been baptized and that Jesus has begun his ministry. That is what has dawned this day of salvation in this era of, 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 of salvation for his people. The acceptable year of the Lord is the, is the recognition that Jesus is now on the scene and that Jesus' ministry has now begun. It is his announcement that salvation is here because he is here. And this is fulfilled is his way of saying this is true. He says that in verse uh, 21. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That what Isaiah had promised all those years and generations ago what you had heard about and what you had heard in synagogue, what you had heard taught and what you had heard referred to, that there was coming this day, there was coming this year, there was coming this freedom for the, those that were in bondage and that there was coming this, this uh, time of good news for those that were poor. It's now here. Because I am here. I'm just wondering as, as they must have packed out that house that day, that that's what they were expecting to see and that that's what they were expecting to hear. And obviously it was not. But as good church people are, they patted him on the back anyway. right? Even though it was a difficult message, even though they didn't understand it, obviously, even though they ended up rejecting it, they still patted him on the back and said, um, in verse 22, they spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Don't take this to mean that they were in agreement with him because they were not. Don't take this to mean that they understood and accepted what he said because they didn't. This is just basically their way of saying, you gave a nice speech today, Jesus. You know, welcome home. It was good to hear your voice again. It was great to have you back in Nazareth. You know, you did a good job up there speaking. You didn't embarrass us too bad. You know, you didn't bring shame on your family or anything like that. You did a good job. And you know that they didn't understand and you know that they didn't accept what he said because of these last few words that they added. Isn't this Joseph's son? And this is sort of the continental divide of the text. Everything up to this point is going one direction and everything after this point goes a completely different direction because this confession is in fact their rejection of who Jesus is and what Jesus had come to do. I have sisters that are, that are twins, and they had this uh, very horrible habit of always taking up for each other. You know, it didn't matter what I said, what mom said, what dad said. They just, if, if, if anything went against one of them, the other was, 
was in the fight, regardless of how silly or meaningless it was. They were both in it together, um, always. And they always made the same mistake over and over, you know, and as the wise older brother always tried to give him counsel that, you know, always went unfulfilled. I was like, if, if y'all could just listen to mom, you don't agree with it, you don't have to buy into it. If you just let her have her say and keep your mouth shut, you know, things would go so much better for the both of you. And if, and if one of you could just sit back and let the other take their punishment and not have to jump in and take their defense, you, you both wouldn't be, you know, suffering the same consequences even though only one of you had done something wrong, but they couldn't do it. They, they both had to join in and they both had to have the last word. And it was often that last word that caused the worst consequences, right? If you've ever, you know, actually, I know none of you ever get angry, but if you've ever said anything in anger at all, it's usually that last line that really causes the, the big trouble, right? I mean, you were kind of good up to that. You had some facts on your side, but then you got emotional and you got carried away and you said something that you really didn't mean. And that's just where the conversation ended because that's where it all fell apart. And it's as if there's sort of a, a silence hanging in the air here as Jesus sort of lets these words hang for a moment. Jesus had declared to them that the dawn of salvation had come, that his ministry had begun, that this is what was going to happen because Jesus is here. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Really, it's, it's more like saying, isn't this only Joseph's son? How is Joseph's son going to accomplish this? How is Joseph's son, the carpenter from down the street, how is he going to fulfill the, the words of Isaiah? How was that kid that we used to see up and down the streets, you know, doing that stuff? How is he going to fulfill this? How is he going to do that? And their confession is that he's not because he's only Joseph's son. They had come there, you might say, to see the tricks. You know, he'd been performing miracles in Capernaum. He'd been performing miracles out in the Galilean countryside, healing and, and all of these things. And they thought maybe perhaps that that's what Jesus had come to do that day. And it didn't happen. Instead, he gives them a, 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 a reading from Isaiah and a, and a confession that, that this is all fulfilled. And they were like, this is not what we came to the synagogue to see today. We came to see, you know, somebody who was crippled walk and somebody who was blind see. And maybe this didn't happen because you're only Joseph's son. And if you think Jesus is always, you know, just warm and fuzzy and always, you know, just easy going and, and with kids in his lap, you know, the, the rest of this story does not uh, indicate that that's how he always was. Because you might say a crude way of saying this is that Jesus now drops the hammer. Okay, if that's who you think I am and if that's your confession that I'm only Joseph's son, then let me tell you a little something about yourself. And here's, here he goes. And he tells us that, that the prophet is not accepted in his hometown and that, that um, he gives them two examples from the Old Testament. One, dealing with, the, uh, with Elijah. And you remember that there was the famine in the land and, and, and God sent Elijah the prophet to, to the widow and, you know, she was barely just scraping enough, you know, enough for the jar for, for, for her and her family to, to eat. And Elijah speaks to her. 
and she obeys. And she's blessed because of her obedience, and she's blessed because of her faith, because of the trust that she had to do what Elijah had said to do, even though it may not have made perfect sense. But Jesus' message is not just to remind them of the story of what Elijah had done. His point here is that Jesus could have done it for other people, and he did. I mean, God could have done it for other people. There were other widows. There were other people suffering in through this, uh, you know, widespread drought. But it didn't happen. And it didn't happen, you know, the inference is that it didn't happen because there was a lack of belief. There was a lack of trust. There was a lack of obedience in the part of God's own people. So I don't know about you, but the fact that now Jesus would compare them and compare them um, in a negative light with a Gentile widow is not something that they really took sitting down. This was something very offensive to them. This was something that offended them greatly because they thought they were okay. They thought that they were the good. They thought they were the ones who had, were okay because they're in synagogue that day. How could you compare us and compare us negatively with a widow who was not even an Israelite? Well, if that one hurt, then the second one hurt just as much. In verse 27, he said, And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Another Gentile, another person from outside of the group, from outside of the, uh, of the, of the family, so to speak, that, that God blessed, that God healed. He was a proud man. He had rejected this plan in the beginning, but, but ultimately he put his pride aside and was obedient to what Elisha had him to do. And God healed him. And it's not just that he's telling them what God can do. He's saying that there were many others that this didn't happen for because they didn't believe, because they didn't trust, because they were too proud. And he's telling the people there that day that they are too proud as well. That their pride has gotten in the way of hearing the message of the Lord. That their own pride has, has, has clouded their vision of who Jesus is. And they're not able to, to see who He is. And they're not able to understand who He is and to accept His message. Because their own pride has clouded their heart and clouded their vision. They think they're okay. And how be it that the little kid from down the street come and tell us that we're not okay. He's only Joseph's son. Jesus was, in essence, saying that they were the poor, they were the blind, they were the broken, and they thought they were okay. Their own pride had clouded their mind, clouded their vision, clouded their hearts to miss who Jesus was and to miss what Jesus had come to do. They thought they were just coming to see a performance, coming to see a show, coming to see Jesus do there in their midst, in their hometown, what he had done in other places. And they missed it. So the questions for us this morning is one to, to, to basically say, what is the price for missing who Jesus is? The reality is, is that if we are not aware of our own poverty, of our own spiritual darkness, of our own lostness, if we don't know the truth about who we are without Christ, 
we will miss everything. If we're not aware of the truth about who Jesus is, we will miss everything. There's a cost to being blind to our own condition. And there's a cost for missing out on the truth of who Jesus is and what he requires. And ultimately, the miracles were great. The homecoming was fun, but the results were awful because they had missed who Jesus was. And their own pride had clouded their vision of who they were. They rejected him. They got angry. And they tried to kill him. The reality is, is that maybe our own response is not maybe that extreme. Maybe we're better at hiding it than they were, perhaps. Uh, you know, maybe the, the fact that the, 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 uh, this text or another text from Scripture would come to us and we would see it and be offended by it because it says something true that, 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 that cuts against who we are and who we think we are and we think we're better than that, but, but the Scripture tells us that we're not. And we get angry. It may just be that we hide it and keep it in and don't necessarily try to take it out on someone else. But this scripture tells us very clearly that if we miss out on the truth about who we are without Christ, and if we miss out on the reality of who Jesus is, the Son of God, not the, just the Son of Joseph, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who'd come to take away the sins of the world, who, as we heard this morning, sets his face towards Jerusalem and, and goes there resolutely to the cross to die on our behalf. If we miss out on seeing him as the way, the truth, and the life, we will have missed everything. If we miss out on our own spiritual poverty and brokenness and blindness, we'll never be able to recognize him as the Savior. We'll never see our need for a Messiah. If we only come to church to see the show and miss out on the message of who Jesus is, it's all for naught. And what a tragedy, what a tragic event that that day the, the synagogue was packed out maybe as never before. And instead of seeing a wonderful revival the place erupted in anger and bitterness because they missed who Jesus was and their pride kept them from seeing who they were. And Jesus is saying, I'm not just the son of Joseph. I'm the son of God, the lamb of God, come to take away the sins of the world. The reason that he was able to perform those miracles, the reason that he was able to do the amazing things that they had seen and that they had heard was specifically because he was not just Joseph's son. He was the son of God. And the reason that he could say that day that these scriptures would be fulfilled in their hearing was explicitly because he wasn't just Joseph's son. He was the son of God. And that he could say, and that the miracles would confirm that he was who he said he was. And we ultimately know by looking at it from the other side of the cross that it happened just as he said it would. But that doesn't mean that our pride can't still get in the way. 
and block our vision of who he is and block our vision of who we really are without him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we have come together to hear your word, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And God, as we have this time of, of response, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts. That God, if there's someone here today that, whether it's pride or some other reason, they've never clearly understood who you are, and they're misguided about who they are, that God, today they would see the truth. That without you, we're nothing. That we're not okay. No matter what we come dressed in or how often we come, that without you, we're not okay. That we need your salvation. And God, that we would rejoice that that salvation has come in the person of Jesus. And that it's available today through what you did on the cross those years ago. God, maybe for some of us who have been saved, we still struggle with pride. And God, we can still act and live and make decisions as if we don't need you. As if we're not poor, as if we're not broken, as if we're okay. God, the truth of this text proclaims that we're not. God, that we wouldn't just walk by you and treat you as if you're just Joseph's son, that we would recognize you for who you are, the one, the only, the Son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, sufficient for salvation, but God, we need you every day. Would you speak to our hearts? Confront us this day, God. May we not get angry, but may we get right and turn to you. In your name we pray. Would you stand this morning as we have...